Welcome to By the Fire. I'm your host, Dave Smale, and this is Captured. Chapter 3. Honor, Courage, and Commitment Within an hour of the gavel drop, Raoul was picked up by a Navy recruiter and shuttled to a hotel. The next morning, he was made to take a grueling multiple-choice test called the ASVAB, the military's entry exam. Then he was taken to a place called MEPS to take an all-day-long physical. After that, he filled out a mountain of paperwork regarding family medical history, addresses of his next of kin, and several other things he had no idea about. He didn't even know his own social security number. Raoul passed the physical with flying colors, but not the ASVAB. They told him he'd have to study and take it again in two days. He was provided a study guide and two days later he passed with a 31, the lowest possible passing score. The following day he was on a plane, another new experience to add to his growing stockpile. He arrived at Navy Recruit Training Command, or RTC, seven months to the day after being arrested in front of his house. Boot camp, Raoul noticed, was a lot like jail. It was also a type of correctional facility. New recruits had their heads shaved, worldly belongings taken, and were issued everything all the way down to underwear and toothbrush. They were told when to speak, eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom, and are disciplined routinely if they do not comply. Phone call and email time was only divvied out as rewards for good behavior. In both institutions, people come in with their own ways, which the staff seeks to break, and replace with a better set of ways. There were also obvious differences between jail and boot camp, the main being, of course, boot camp was voluntary. Another being that it was possible to be kicked out of boot camp for failure to adapt. In jail, failure to adapt meant a longer sentence and solitary confinement. Lastly, boot camp is only a few months, and every recruit is paid. Raoul was mentally prepared for the verbal abuse he'd take, having seen a few military movies. His favorite by far was Full Metal Jacket, and his favorite character was the drill sergeant, played by the late R. Lee Ermey. He was disappointed that the verbal tirades he'd witnessed and received himself were not nearly as harsh as Ermey's portrayal of the drill sergeant. However, there were still a few worthy of remembrance. In one case, Raoul was told by his recruit division commander, or RDC, the Navy's version of a drill sergeant, that he was, quote, lower than whale dung, and that was at the bottom of the ocean. It made him chuckle. In the end, it was a mind game and he knew it. However, he wasn't prepared for the sub-zero Illinois winter, nor the whininess of his fellow recruits. They complained about everything, it seemed. Most could barely eke out five push-ups. He got into more verbal altercations with them than he cared to. For that reason, he often found himself called into the RDC's office and reminded of his proper place among the whale dung on the seafloor. After the fourth altercation with one of the punk recruits, his RDC realized 
that his disciplinary actions were not effective. Raoul was sent before a DRB, or Disciplinary Review Board. The board members told him that they were aware of his arrangement with the judge, and that they had no qualms about sending him back to jail if he so much as breathed wrongly at another recruit. Raoul swallowed his pride and made up his mind that he would finish boot camp even if it meant suppressing the urge to pound every last one of his fellow punk recruits into the floor, or the deck as he was now supposed to call it. Halfway through boot camp, the recruits were treated to what the RDCs called career day. Recruits were allowed to peruse jobs, or rates, other than the one they initially signed up for. The reason for this, they were told, was because the physicals performed at MEPS, the one that took all day long, are often done hurriedly due to the sheer volume of recruits. MEPS often disqualified recruits for careers that they were clearly qualified for. Therefore, the Navy re-screened every recruit, hence career day. Most of his fellow recruits entered boot camp under one of the Navy's apprenticeship programs airman, seaman, or fireman apprentice. Raoul was included in that bunch. He was an airman apprentice. After re-screening, some of his fellow recruits came away with cool-sounding jobs. One was now an aviation ordnance man. Another was now a fire controlman. One guy said he'd qualified for nuke school, whatever that was. They sent people to fix microwaves? When it came to Raoul's turn, he was not given a choice. He was a special case, the RDC said. He entered under an airman apprentice program and he would stay that way. It wasn't all bad though, they said. Being an airman apprentice meant he would be able to observe the various jobs aboard whatever ship he was sent to and then strike for it, which he learned meant choose one that he liked and apply for it. Upon graduating boot camp, he was shipped to Pensacola, Florida for a three-week-long school to learn aviation fundamentals. It was more like a crash course. He arrived in April to a climate much different than the late winter-early spring of Illinois. Pensacola, or P-Cola as most sailors referred to it, was already experiencing 85-degree heat and 90% humidity. He was used to the heat being from Southern California, but humidity was another matter. And the place was infested with giant flying insects that looked like they could have fought Godzilla. The day he finished school, Raoul was handed a set of orders to the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower in Norfolk, Virginia. His flight was leaving the next morning. His world was spinning. In a matter of just four months, He'd gone from jail in California to boot camp in Illinois to school in Florida to an aircraft carrier in Virginia. At least the weather was nice. Not nearly as cold as Illinois, nor as hot as California, nor as humid as Pecola. No one was waiting for him at the airport. He had to take an Uber to Naval Station Norfolk, which could only go as far as the front gate. The security guards at the gate called the quarterdeck of the USS Eisenhower and a duty van was dispatched to pick him up and bring him to the ship. The floating steel titan was larger than Raoul had imagined. 
He was led on board by a petty officer, though he was too awestruck by the size of the carrier to catch the guy's name. Before he knew what was going on, he was being escorted by someone else up a series of steep ladders to a door labeled V1 Division Office in black military block letters. The American Navy's enlisted rank system is far more complicated than the other military branches, peppered with Navy cultural nuances and etiquettes. While the Army, Marines, Air Force, and even the newer Space Force uses familiar terms such as privates, corporals, and sergeants, the Navy's junior enlisted are seamen, airmen, firemen, and constructionmen, depending on which field of work they are assigned to. Petty officers are the mid-level personnel, and chief petty officers, or simply chiefs, are the senior enlisted managerial types. Still, more formal titles are used ceremonially. Formal titles combine the sailor's job description with their rank. Some examples are Torpedoman, Seaman Apprentice, Hospital Corpsman, Third Class, or Machinist Mate, Chief Petty Officer. However, the Navy places greater emphasis on a junior sailor's job than his or her rank. So the formal titles are used more commonly in conversation, though they are greatly abbreviated. For example, an aviation structural mechanic, second class, would be referred to as AM2. Or a builder, first class, would be referred to as BU1. Yet, in another strange twist of contradictory naval etiquette, both the junior enlisted, seamen, airmen, etc., and senior enlisted members, chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs, are referred to by their rank only. Therefore, when Raoul walked into the V1 division office, he was greeted by a friendly-looking petty officer who said, What's up, Airman Diaz? I may be H2 Collins. Another man sitting behind a computer said, Airman Diaz, I'm Chief Hask. The chief was a portly Caucasian man with receding light brown hair and a bushy mustache that had to be out of regulations. His voice was deep and gruff from years of smoking. He wore the same blue, black, and gray digital camouflage outfit that all sailors now wore since the uniforms had shifted years before. Raoul wore his dress white uniform with a black neckerchief looking every bit like the caricature on a box of Cracker Jacks. Everything he owned was divided between the large green Navy-issued duffel called a sea bag, which hung on his back, and the blue garment bag that he held. His only other worldly possession was the manila folder containing his orders in his other hand. Chief Hask didn't rise to greet Raoul, something he found a little disrespectful. Collins here is your sponsor, the chief said. Collins was an African-American man of just under six feet tall, in his mid-twenties. He had kind eyes and a smile that revealed two gold teeth. Raoul knew right away he'd get along with him just fine. He'll take you around and get you checked in. You'll probably go TAD right away, Chief Hask said. Uh, TAD, Chief? Raoul asked. Yeah, probably mess cranking while we're in the yards. Raoul looked completely confused. Mess cranking? The short, round chief looked impatient. 
Collins, he said in his indistinguishable drawl. This was Chief Hask's way of saying that he had neither time nor desire to further explain anything to the new guy. I got him, Chief, said Collins. Chief Hask turned to his computer screen and began clicking away on the mouse. Collins handed Raoul a blue folder with a piece of paper stapled to it, labeled USS Dwight D. Eisenhower Air Department Check-In Sheet. The paper was a list of places or people, Raoul wasn't exactly sure. Next to each name was an empty block in which Raoul was expected to get signatures. Collins beckoned and Raoul followed him out of the office. I'll show you where the burden is and the mess decks, Collins said. After that, it'll be just about secure time. Raoul wished that he'd paid better attention in boot camp during the naval terminology lesson. He was pretty sure that mess decks was where the food was served, but all the other terms like TAD, mess cranking, in the yards, birthing, and secure time were all Greek to him. Don't I gotta check in? He asked. We could start, but ain't a lot of people around. It passed 1500. We finish tomorrow. He'd arrived at the ship just before 3 p.m., or 1500, as he was trying to train himself to say now that he was a military man. As they walked, a feeling of extreme loneliness came over him. Except for Collins and that rude Chief Hask guy, Raoul knew no one here. Collins said that there weren't many people around, but everywhere Raoul looked, there seemed to be someone walking with purpose as if they were on a mission. If this was what it looked like when not a lot of people were around, Raoul couldn't imagine when everyone was here. The ship was an endless maze. Strange machinery was intermittently placed in random places. Pipes and electrical wiring ran along and through walls or bulkheads. As Collins was leading him toward the birthing compartment, which turned out to be Navy speak for the place where sailors sleep, he noticed a post office, a barber shop, and a convenience store. Man, they got everything here, Raoul thought. Unfortunately, they were closed. Collins explained that most everything on the ship was closed because they had just got done with crews. Crews? Raoul asked. Yeah, six-month deployment, Collins said in his southern drawl. Well, more like seven months. Raoul nodded, thinking he understood what Collins said. He was not used to southern drawl, especially deep southern drawl. He did his best to translate as Collins spoke. Duh was the, dat was that, day could mean they or their, mo was more, mumps were months. Collins continued to explain the way life worked aboard the ship as they walked through the narrow passageways, up ladders stepping over combings in the doorways, which Collins referred to as knee knockers and through watertight hatches. When we come off cruise, the ship kind of take a break. Know what I'm saying? So we about to head to the yards for like eight months or something like that. The yards? Yeah, the shipyards over in Portsmouth for repairs. 
okay. Portsmouth? Raoul wondered. Anyway, the ship's laundry is way down on the fourth deck. Fourth deck. Raoul found himself mentally translating Colin's drawl as he spoke. But you don't want your clothes going there. Lesson you never want to see him again. Go to the laundromat down by the necks. Finally, an acronym he understood. The NECS was the Navy Exchange, a retail store for active duty reserve and retired service members. He'd been to the one on the base in Florida. It was like going to Target or Walmart. At last, they arrived at a door labeled V1 Male Birthing. Collins explained that V1 was the name of their division within the Air Department. They were responsible for moving aircraft around the flight deck in the hangar bay of the ship. Raoul knew the latter piece of information from his airman apprentice training in P. Cola. They entered, and Raoul beheld the bunks, or racks, which were beige in color, stacked three high all around them. Most of them had blue curtains pulled closed across them, but a few were apparently vacant, so Raoul could see the actual size of the space in which he was expected to sleep. To say it would have driven a claustrophobe into hysteria would be the understatement of the year. Raoul was assigned a rack by the petty officer in charge of the birthing. Collins told him to toss his belongings onto the rack and he'd take him down to the mess deck. Having not eaten all day, Raoul piled high his tray with two pieces of fried chicken, a mound of steamed rice, green beans, and a square of yellow cake with white frosting, and a cup of cherry coke. Collins got very little by comparison. So what's your name? Collins said. Raoul looked at him as if to say, You forgot already? I know it Diaz, but I mean your first name. They gave it back to you after boot camp, right? Oh, <laughs> Raoul laughed nervously. Raoul. Cool, I'm Ladarius. Raoul nodded and went back to inhaling rice. Where are you from? Collins asked. Raoul stopped and stared at him. The question caught him off guard as he was unsure how to answer. Was Collins really asking what gang Raoul was in? When the silence became awkward, Collins realized his mistake. Hey, bruh, I'm talking about where did you grow up? Like, I'm from Athens, Georgia. Oh, uh, Pacoima. It's uh, close to L.A. Cali? Aye, aye. Well, it's about secure time, said Collins as they left the galley. What's that? Secure time. Like it's time to get off work? Collins laughed and replied, Yeah, yeah, that would it means. Think you can find your way back to the hangar bay? We must have, and then they let us go. Yeah, I think so, Raoul said. Aye, right, man, I'll see you down there in 15 minutes. Hangar bay 2, remember? Remember how there were three hangar bays? Raoul nodded. Hangar bay 2 is the one in the middle. Raoul nodded as Collins left. Raoul was able to unpack very little before heading to the muster. Afterwards, Collins reminded him that morning muster was at 0700. Then, Collins turned toward the quarterdeck of the ship. Hey, 
Where are you headed? Raoul called after him. Home? Huh? You don't live on the ship? Collins laughed again. Nah, man. I'm married. I got a wife and three kids at the house. Until that moment, Raoul hadn't considered that military personnel were real people with real lives. Uh, okay, he said. Hey, man, I remember being new and single. I thought all the sailors lived on the ship, too, but nah. A lot of guys are married, or they live off the ship in town. Okay, said Raoul. So where's the next set? I need some clothes. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll give you a ride, but you gotta get yourself back. Cool? Raoul smiled. Cool. After a shopping trip to the next, the remainder of Raoul's night was an adventure of getting back to the ship, then remembering how to find the birthing compartment. It took him an hour and a half. Then he spent another half hour figuring out how he was supposed to sleep in a bed that looked as if it was made for someone who wasn't three-dimensional. When he finally crawled in, he realized he couldn't roll onto his side without hitting the rack above him. The filthy mattress was so thin, he felt like he was sleeping on sheet metal. He longed even for his jailhouse bunk. Restless, Raoul contemplated all that had happened up to that point. He recalled that while in jail, he thought to put distance between himself and gang life. It seemed impossible then. But now here he was, 3,000 miles from Pacoima, as if his Hail Mary had been answered. It would have been a great feeling, if not for the accompanying loneliness. At least in jail he had some vatos, most of whom he'd known since he was little. It struck him how sad that was. Everyone he'd known was from some kind of illegal activity they'd done together, or been jailmates. If only he could live a normal life and have normal friends. Thanks to that judge, he was at least part of the way there. He just wasn't sure that he was cut out for it. You've been listening to By the Fire, and I really hope you enjoyed what you heard. Why don't you let me know, one way or the other? Leave me a review on Apple or on Podchaser. Or you can send me an email, info at davesmail.com. Also, if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a free novella, Safe House. I'll be back next week with another chapter of Captured. So until then, thanks again and God bless. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental.